Good morning. My name is Russ Ramsey. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown. I'm generally at the 12 South congregation, but, uh, but it is good to be with you on, on Palm Sunday. I want to start with a question, and the question is, um, where do you need Jesus to intervene in your life? And as I throw that question out, I know that there's a range of answers that, that might be coming to mind in a room this size. What, where do you need God's intervention in your life? And the answer, the way that we answer that question really will tell us as much about what we believe about who we are as it will tell us about what we believe about God himself, right? Because you would have some people who would say, I don't. I don't need God to intervene in my life at all. I've, I've got this. This is, this is fine. I don't need divine intervention. I don't really even believe in divine intervention. Or some of us might say, I don't really need him to intervene in my life. What I really just need is to understand his teaching. I need to be inspired by the example that he set for me. But in terms of him intervening in my life, I don't really, really need that. Others of us might be in this camp that says, um, sure, I could use a little help. You know, I could use a little help here and there. I could use help with uh, opening certain doors that I want to be able to walk through. God, if you could oversee some logistics for me, uh, that would be great. Or pardon some mistakes that I've made in my life, that would be wonderful. If you could, if you could grant me some favors, right? That's a profoundly doctrinal position to hold uh, about what you believe about God. But then there are people who say, I need him for everything. I need him to intervene constantly. I need him to be active in my life. I need, I'm so broken, I'm so lost without him that if he is not intervening in every waking moment of my life, I am, I am lost. It's, it's an incredible question because what the question is asking of us is, do you, do you need Jesus to be alive in order for him to occupy the role that he has in your life right now? So don't rush to answer this question. Think about, how, do, how does my life bear out? Where do I need Jesus Christ to intervene? Do you need a living Savior? Do you need an intentional Savior? Or do you need an inspiration? Do you need an example? Do you need somebody who has given good teaching that you're then going to take that teaching and apply it to your life and use it and grow? And Jesus said a lot of things about himself, a lot of things about who he was, what he had come to do. And Easter week, this week that we're in right now that starts on Palm Sunday and goes through Easter Sunday, is think about this for a second. If you've read the Bible one of the things that you'll notice in Scripture is that God doesn't give us his word in very many places where it's telling us, okay, on this day, these things happened, and then the very next day, these things happened. More what you get in Scripture is eras, right? You get years at a time or events that aren't so much rooted in specifically how many days until you get to this week, you get to Palm Sunday and Easter, and all of a sudden, Scripture comes to a grinding halt almost, and you've got this window of eight or nine days where about 25 chapters of Scripture are devoted to saying, okay, on Palm Sunday, this happened, 
And then the next day, Monday, this happened. And then Tuesday, this happened. And Wednesday, there's a handout that you probably received on your way in. If you didn't, you can get one at the Ask Me Anything table that I put together to help you kind of this week, if you want, to, to be able to read Okay, it's Palm Sunday. What happened on Palm Sunday? And tomorrow, it's Monday of Easter week. What happened on Monday of Easter week? And it's, and it's intended to give you the relevant scriptures from the four Gospels of what was going on on those days. Jesus said things about himself that cause the Gospel writers, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to zero in on this week and say, let's stop here for a second and look at how this is unfolding One of the things that Jesus said in John 10 was he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. And this charge I receive from my father. This is a verse that Easter week says, test it out, see if that's true. Because what's the difference? Does it make a difference if Jesus was simply a martyr who was an inspirational guy, but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and ended up getting arrested and killed, and that was just kind of the end of that? That, That's a pretty significantly different scenario than what Jesus is saying about himself. Because what's he saying? He's saying, one, nobody's going to take it from me. Nobody's going to come along and take my life from me. Instead, What's going to happen is he is going to lay it down. He's going to willingly offer it up. He's not going to be a martyr. He's not going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's not going to be unable to escape capture. Martyrs are people who die for causes. Martyrs are people who inspire people to follow their example. And Jesus is saying, this is not me. He says, I, I have authority, and I alone have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. This is amazing. He's saying, I have this authority, this mission, this purpose to die. And then after I've died, to live again. And I alone have the authority to do this. Death can't hold me in this. And then he ends it with this, powerful statement of, and this is why I'm here. This is the charge that I received from my father, to lay down my life of my own accord, and then to take it up again. That is an incredibly audacious thing for anyone to say, I've come to live and to die and to rise again, and the reason I've come to do this is because God sent me for this purpose. When you think of the grand scope of this statement that Jesus is making, how does it fit into your understanding of what you need Jesus for in your life? Is he somebody that you just need favors from or inspiration from? Or do you need a living Savior, a courageous but dead martyr, or a living Savior? Jesus' claim that no one would take his life from him, but instead that he would lay it down of his own accord, is something that you start to see the details of this unfolding this week. Easter week, Palm Sunday, the behavior of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the words of Jesus. You see him requiring 
the religious leaders in Jerusalem and the Roman authorities in Jerusalem to take the actions that they take to crucify him. And today we're going to dig into part of that story that is just mind-blowing to me. And it all starts on this hillside outside Jerusalem where Jesus is riding this donkey into the city and there's this mass of people who have gathered around and are praising him. And so I want to read John's account of this story and then dig into it. And I'm telling you, for, for a while, we're going to be in storyteller mode, okay? So I want, I want you to hear this story as it unfolds. We're going to start on the triumphal entry, and then we're going to go back in time a little bit and rewind up to this moment and see and test. Is somebody taking his life from him this week, or is he laying it down? This is from John 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been there with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let me pray. Father, you've given us your word not to conceal yourself, but to reveal yourself. You've given us your word that we might know you. And Lord, as we zero in on a point in time, on some events in history, Lord, would you help us to see not just the intentionality of your actions, but the greatness of your love and the radical commitment to lay down your life for us in these events that unfold. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So you get the scene. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. It's in fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah 9 that talks about how the king will ride into Jerusalem in a way that is on the one hand kingly and on the other hand humble. And there are people lining the streets. Geography lesson, real quick. Jerusalem sits up on a hill. And on the east side of Jerusalem, there is a valley called the Valley of Silwan. And on the other side of that valley are what we might call the suburbs of Jerusalem, right? So you've got Jerusalem over here, the valley. Over here is the Garden of Gethsemane going up. And up on this hill is a little village called Bethany, Okay. So Jesus had been in Bethany, and he's riding down the hill. That matters. We'll get to that in a second. But the people are lining the street. They're laying down palms, and one of the other gospel writers says, and they're laying down their coats. This is nothing more than rolling out a red carpet. This is a way of honoring Jesus and saying, you are worthy of greater honor than having to ride on the dirt of the earth. So we are going to create a road for you. We're going to lay down palm branches and coats as a way of saying, here is a road for you to ride on that is not dirty. Here's a road for you to ride on that is meant for a king. And the people are saying, Hosanna, which is not a name, 
but is a prayer. The word Hosanna means, come save us now. So that's what they're saying. They're, he's riding in like a king, and they're saying, king, come save us now. And they're referring to the Roman occupation and oppression. They're looking at Jesus as the one who can establish Israel as an independent kingdom again, that he can rule and reign as a king. And there are Pharisees and religious leaders who are also there on the hillside who are watching the people that they lead every week call Jesus king and praise him like this, and they're saying to Jesus, will you tell them to stop? Because you're a rabbi, we're rabbis, and you know that if the Roman authorities find out that Jewish people are calling one of their own king there's going to be trouble. And where are they going to bring the trouble? They're going to bring it to us. They're going to bring it to the leaders. So you tell these people to stop praising you in this way. And Jesus says, no. If they don't praise me, the rocks and the very trees will cry out in praise of me. Now, is that the conduct of a man who is trying to evade arrest and capture? Let's go on. Everybody there on that hillside has an idea of who Jesus is. Everybody. His disciples are there. They have an idea of Jesus, who Jesus is. The people who are praising him and laying down their cults, they do. The religious leaders, they do. Any of the Roman soldiers who would be watching, they do. It's easy for us to presume that we know what Jesus wants. But in this ride into Jerusalem, Jesus is doing something that no one on that hillside understands. None of them. None of them really Get it, and it doesn't change the fact that he's still doing it. He's doing it, why? Because this charge he received from his father. It doesn't require the assent or the belief of the people around him for him to be faithful to his mission. That's encouraging. But this ride from Bethany, where he's receiving all his praise, it wouldn't have mattered had it not been for the fact that there was a crowd that had gathered to praise him. We live in an age of flash mobs, don't we? There's a television show now devoted to flash mobs, this strange phenomenon where all of a sudden, you know, things are normal, and then all of a sudden, everybody's doing something in unison, and you're like, what is going on? How did these people, you know, and it's Twitter, and it's, and it's Facebook, but Jesus didn't have Twitter. He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have technology to tell everybody, hey, let everybody know to meet at this one place, and we'll have this big thing. So, how did these people know to be on this hillside at this point? That's the question we're going to jump into right now. In light of the question, did somebody take his life from him or did he lay it down? Because John tells us why they're there. Did you see it? He says the reason that they're there on that hillside is because this man named Lazarus had died and Jesus had risen him from the dead and the people who saw this happen hadn't stopped talking about it since. And the people who gathered on the hillside were there because they heard from these people who couldn't stop talking about it that the one who did this thing that raised Lazarus from the dead, that he was riding into Jerusalem. So they were there on that hillside to see him because he was awesome. He was unbelievable. He was a man who could raise the dead. So I want to tell you that story. Some weeks before Jesus rides on these palms, a man in Bethany, over here, gets sick. 
And maybe it starts as a cough or a dull kind of pain or nausea, headache. We don't know. But what we do know is that however it started, it progressed and it got worse. And it got worse to the point where Lazarus couldn't get out of bed anymore. And he lived with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And they were tending to him and caring for him. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were friends of Jesus in such a way that when they went to tell Jesus that Lazarus was sick, they said in John 11, this is just the previous chapter of this story, they said, the one that you love is sick. Meaning, he's alive, but he's fading. And then and now, we live in a world where sickness and death are telling us one thing. They're screaming one thing at us. This world is fading. This world is fading away. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, his response was this. He said, this illness does not end in death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, how do you suppose the Son of God would be glorified through the sickness of Lazarus? Is he going to be glorified through the acclaim that he receives from raising Lazarus from the dead? Is that the extent of what Jesus has in mind? Let's keep going. Jesus stays where he is two more days. And the description of staying in this place two more days is one of the strangest verses in Scripture that you'll ever see. It says this in John eleven five 5 and 6. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. And the language in the original is clear. He loved these people, therefore he did not go to them. That's what the text is saying. It wasn't that he loved them, but that he was busy. It wasn't that he loved them, but he just couldn't get away. It was because he loved them that he did not go. And so by the time he does arrive in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead now for four days. Four days. Meaning that at least a full week had passed between hearing of Lazarus' sickness and arriving at Bethany at his home. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples in those days between hearing of Lazarus' sickness and arriving. He said this, and I ask you as I read this, is this the Jesus you know? Here's what he said. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. What is that? Jesus used time. For those of you who feel like I'm in a season of my life in time that I want to end, Jesus used time to let Lazarus die, to let Lazarus' sisters go through the heartbreaking experience of watching their brother slip in and out of consciousness, watch his chest rise and fall and rise and fall and then rise no more. 
Jesus let this happen. Martha, his sister, said through her grief to Jesus when she saw him, if you'd have been here, if you'd have just been here, my brother would not have died. Where is that your, the cry of your heart right now? If you'd have been here, fill in the blank. See, that's an incredible statement of faith. She believes if you'd have been here, you could have stopped death. I mean, that's an incredible statement of faith. She believed that he could stop death. She just didn't seem to believe that once death had come, he had any more jurisdiction after that. Do you need a martyr or a living savior? She's demanding, asking, pleading, Jesus, please give me an account of yourself here. I do not understand why you're doing the things that you're doing. Have you ever demanded an account from God of his conduct, of his behavior, of his reasons for why he does what he does, why he chooses one path over another? Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. He allowed Lazarus to die so that he could raise him from the dead. That's where we are. But you have to understand, death is not a game to Jesus. This isn't a parlor trick for Jesus. He's not playing fast and loose with Lazarus' life. In fact, when he came to Lazarus' tomb, he saw something that moved him to the point of tears. And what he saw was Lazarus' other sister Mary crying and saying the same thing. If you'd have been here, and John tells us, Jesus wept. He broke down and he wept. Why? Because death is not the way it's supposed to be. It's a cruel intruder. You know it and I know it. And we can say as much as we want about death that, well, death is just a part of life. But that is not what resonates in the heart of a grieving person. It's that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And scripture says, that's right, it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a wage. It's the wage of sin. So when Jesus tells Martha that Lazarus is going to raise from the dead, she already knows what she thinks. She says, I know he will. I know he will in the last day. As if time has to happen. That Jesus is constrained by time. And Jesus, I imagine, in putting his hands on her shoulders so that she doesn't miss it, He says, no, Martha, listen. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives because he believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? This question begs a counter-question, doesn't it? Do you believe this, or do you believe something else? Jesus goes to the cave where Lazarus' body lay, and he asks for the stone to be rolled away that's covering the entrance to the tomb. And they tell him, uh, he's been in there four days, and he's pretty ripe. It's not going to be pleasant. And then Jesus turns and prays aloud 
in one of these prayers that many of us get uncomfortable when we hear other normal people doing it, but it's okay for Jesus because he's the second person of the blessed Trinity. He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this out loud on account of the people who are standing around. So he's praying to God in order that people might hear his prayer. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And covered in wrappings, wrappings that his loved ones had wrapped around his lifeless body, he comes out. And Jesus says, unbind him. And this is a tipping point. Because after this, people begin to put their faith in Jesus by the score. It was here that many in this region began to think of Jesus as a king. And it makes sense, right? If he can defeat death then he can defeat the ones who would kill us for not obeying them. If he can beat death itself, then what do we have to fear the people who would hand out death as a punishment? They believe that he can overcome Rome. And the religious leaders said, this is a problem. And here's how they put it in John eleven forty eight and 53. If we let him go on like this, See, they're in the driver's seat. If we let him go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. And the Romans will come, and they will take away our place, and they will take away our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And once this decision was made, John says in John eleven fifty four, Jesus could no longer walk openly around the Jews after that, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Do you see the picture? Lazarus gets sick. He waits. He comes. Lazarus is dead. He raises Lazarus from the grave. People begin to say, you're the king. And the religious leaders say, wait, no, 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 no. We got to kill him. We got to snuff him out. And Jesus says, it's not time. So he goes and he hides. He's laying low in the wilderness. So then what comes next? Passover week, and all the people of Israel are making these pilgrimages, many of them to Jerusalem to worship. And the religious leaders say, keep an eye out because he may try to show up for Passover. Where does he go? Where does he go? when he comes back to the area of Jerusalem, when he leaves his time of hiding and he goes back, where does he go? Would you believe me if I told you? He goes to Bethany, to Lazarus' house. And when he gets there, they have a party, a celebration. Guess what night this was? Saturday night, last night. Big party going on at Lazarus' house. The word is spreading like wildfire all throughout Bethany, down the valley, up the other side, into Jerusalem. Jesus is back. Not only is he back, but he's returned to the scene of the crime. He's gone to the most obvious place he could have gone, to Lazarus' house, and there he is, and he's having this party. So then we come to today's text, and there's people sitting on the hillside praising him, and why? Because he had gone to Lazarus' house and everybody was talking about he's back. He's back and not only is he back, but he's with Lazarus. I was just talking with uh, 
Elizabeth Olmsted before the service about John's gospel and how strange John's gospel is and some of the things that he says and the little details that he throws in. Here's one. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there at Lazarus' house, this is John 12. This is just the immediate verses before the ones we read. Um, Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, a large crowd gathered. So, verse 10, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Not only was Jesus a marked man now, but Lazarus too, which asks, (laughs) what could that possibly accomplish? What's his crime? Was that he died and then he lived again? What is the punishment for the crime? To kill him again. It doesn't make sense. Does it seem like things are getting out of hand here in this story? People are thirsty for Jesus' blood, and what is he doing? He's saying, here I am. Here I am. And in case you've forgotten why you're frustrated with me, here's who I'm with. Are these the actions of a man who is in the process of having anything taken from him? Or is he laying his own life down? Because this distinction makes all the difference. The accidental martyr or the deliberate living Savior. Do you need Jesus just to inspire you with his words and with his conduct? Or do you need him to save your life? It was the next morning, this morning, that he got that colt and he rode into Jerusalem. And it was the first time since raising Lazarus from the dead that he had shown his face in Jerusalem. And the story had circulated. Everybody wanted to catch a glimpse of him. And this is your flash mob. This is why they're there. Because this happened. And they went out to meet him and receive him as king because they heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember Jesus kept saying, this isn't going to end in death, but it's going to end in glory. It's going to end in the glory of the Son of God. What if he wasn't referring to this moment on that hillside? Because it doesn't seem like he was. The glory that Jesus had in mind was that Lazarus' death would be the event that would steal the resolve of the religious leaders to hand Jesus over to a death that he would freely accept, a death that he would conquer, which would be different from Lazarus' death and resurrection. And so he waited. He waited for Lazarus' sickness to produce death. He let him die. He did all this so that this world that we live in now, that is fading would arrive at a point where they could no longer contain him without either making him king or taking his life. And ironically, both realities were coming. They were making him king, and they were taking his life. So they cried, your king is coming. And they praised his victory over Lazarus' death. And the irony is that he wasn't coming to claim his crown for that death and resurrection, but that he was instead riding into that town to initiate his own death and resurrection 
because no one takes his life from him, but he does lay it down of his own accord. He is laying it down. No one did this to him. And that's why he accepts the praise and the adulation of these people who really don't understand what it is that he's doing. They're calling him king. And he lets them because more than they know, he is their king. He's the king of the universe. And he is doing something that is exceedingly kingly in that moment. And what he's doing is he is securing our citizenship in his kingdom for all eternity. So having said all that, let me leave you with a few observations and applications. Number one, no one got it. No one on that hillside understood. Even, John tells us, and John's one of them, even his disciples didn't understand these things at first. John is saying, I was there, and I didn't get it. It wasn't until later. It wasn't until he was glorified in the resurrection that I remembered that these things had been written about him. I mean, when Jesus spoke of his own death, his disciples said, no, 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 no. that's not going to happen. Don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. His disciples, his closest people, Then there's the people on the hillside thinking that the greatest need that they have for divine intervention is for God to deal with all the external problems around them represented in Rome. Oh, that's our heart so often, isn't it? Lord, what I need from you is for you to deal with the externals around me because I'm good, but I'm bothered. And they're praising him for this and calling him king. Then you've got the religious leaders who are thinking... This is going to really upset everything we've worked so hard to build. And besides, we don't really remember ever asking you to behave in any kind of authoritative way with the people that we lead. So stop it. Who are you on the hillside? Where do you think you need Jesus to intervene? Do you need him to keep on just giving you life lessons and instruction Do you need him to take care of the external things that are going on in your world because that would make everything fine? Are you somebody who says, I am my own religion. I'm the architect of it. I don't need you. In fact, it would do me a lot. It would be a lot better for me if you would just be quiet and you would tell all of your people to just be quiet too. See, Jesus is always, 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 always doing more than we think. In your life right now, he's doing more than you think. The things that you're looking at and saying, gosh, God has me in this wilderness right now. And I think these are the things that he's teaching me. Yes, but (laughs) there's a lot more to it than you can even understand. Which is encouraging because think of what the people in this story had to go through in order for this moment on this hillside that would kick off this week where Jesus would be, you know, if Jerusalem was a beehive, he was hitting, with it, was hitting it with a stick all week long, right? The anger within is getting organized because he's there and he's doing these things. You can read about it if you go through the daily readings and see what he did. It's amazing. It's just amazing. But think about the things that people endured in this. I mean, think about Lazarus. I'm sick. I feel terrible. I'm dying. And he died. And the grief of his sisters, Martha and Mary, 
asking their neighbors, pray. Pray for my brother that he'd be healed. And he isn't. And then you've got disciples who are like, I don't understand why you did this. And then when you go to explain it to me, I don't even understand your explanation. You're glad that we're confused? You're glad that these things happened? Then you've got Jesus' proclamations that are just confounding the people around him. You've got murder plots. You've got laying low in the wilderness. All these things are happening that are a part of this story, and Jesus is at the helm pulling the trigger on all of them, all of them. Often where we want Jesus to intervene is in those moments of pain, right? Is, is help me with my grief, tend to my pain, deliver me from a difficult situation. Let me praise you for the list of things that I'd like for you to do for me that I can understand are for my good. And he's always doing more. So our view of Christ is always too small. Is there hope then in the Easter story? Yes. Here's why. Even though no one really understood who Jesus was or what he was doing, he has told us that his identity and his purpose, his promise and his salvation don't require our perfect understanding. Only faith, and faith is a gift. His charge to lay down his life and to take it up again was not a charge that he received from me. And it wasn't a charge that he received from you. It was a charge that he received from his Father. Jesus presides over Easter week in Jerusalem. No one takes his life from him. Does Jesus' ability to intervene in your life hinge on your ability to understand every facet of the mystery of who he is and what he has done? The gospel tells you today, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because he's not acting on a charge that you've given him. He's doing what his father had sent him to do. He came into the world and the world did not receive him. John opens his gospel with this statement. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And yet Paul tells us in Romans, God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Easter is a call. It's a call. This week is a call for you to think and to believe Jesus when he says to Martha and he says to you, I am the resurrection and the life. And everyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives because he believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Pray with me. Father, every time you ask us, call us to believe, you are calling us to do something that on our own we are incapable of doing. Our minds can't comprehend the wonder and the depth and the beauty of who you are. We never really understand fully this side of heaven everything that's involved in what you're doing. And yet at the same time, you live in us, you walk among us, you reveal yourself to us, you give us your word, not that you would conceal yourself from us, but that you would reveal yourself to us, that we might not only know about you, but that we would know you and that we would live in you.
And Father, I pray that this week would be a sober, holy, joy-filled week of wonder and awe as we consider what it means that no one took your life from you, but that you laid it down of your own accord and then that you took it up again. And the reason that you did this was because this was the reason for which you had come, the reason for which your Father had sent you. May all praise be to you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.